Hi everybody, I'm Cindy Mooring, the Founder and Executive Chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real-world experience as a senior executive, so if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's actually been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome. Let's get started. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Gian Piero Petrieri, who is an expert on leadership and learning in the workplace. He is an associate professor of organizational behavior at INSEAD. For those of you who don't know INSEAD, it's the Graduate Business School in Europe, Asia, and Middle East. Jean Piero is also very interesting here, a medical doctor and a psychiatrist by training who's been researching and practicing in the field of leadership development for the past two decades. He directs the INSEAD Management Acceleration Program, which is INSEAD's flagship executive education program for emerging leaders. He's also the academic director of the INSEAD Initiative for Learning Innovation and Teaching Excellence. He has received numerous awards for his research and his teaching. He's also a public intellectual who writes regularly for practitioners in the Harvard Business Review, the Sloan Management Review, and the Financial Times, among many, many other places. Jean Piero has also been listed among the 50 most influential management thinkers in the entire world, and it is such a pleasure to be able to have a few minutes to talk with you today. So welcome, welcome to the podcast and the video series, Jean Piero. It's a pleasure to be here, Cindy. Thank you for having me. So Jean Piero, it is such an interesting route that you've taken from being a medical doctor and a psychiatrist into academia and teaching management and in a business school. So how did you make that transition? Yeah, from, uh, you could say from one kind of tournament to another. Um, I made the transition in a very kind of torturous and fortuitous way. Uh, and people often ask me, wow, you've, uh, you moved very far away from your original training. And in some ways I have, and in some ways I feel I haven't. I mean, I have always been interested in, um, in the way work as a central place in people's life. And sometimes it can help us with our struggle, with our mental health and with our ability to feel connected to others. And sometimes it can make the struggle worse. And uh, in my training as a psychiatrist, I was very interested in, in systemic psychiatry, which is um, you know, a way to try to understand mental health, not just from the perspective of what goes on in your chemistry, in your brain, in your biology, but also um, as a function of what goes on around you in your social system, in your family, in your community, in your workplace. And from very early on, I noticed obviously how important work can be in people's lives you know right. work in the workplace can lift us up but also they can pull us apart they can drag us down and that led me to get interested in coaching and consulting and then for a long period of time to work a little bit at the intersection of the clinical and um, developmental work and then eventually INSEAD invited me to teach a course um, for three months and that was 14 years ago I'm um, still here I'm still teaching, I'm still doing a lot of work supporting people's um, personal and organizational leadership development. And I then became interested in also researching what works, what doesn't, why does it work, and yeah. why do people um, 
why do people often love and um, hate their work so passionately and what yeah. does work do to us? And of course, leadership is a big part of that because right. leaders have a, have a large role in shaping workplaces that can be healthier or less healthy. Yeah, yeah, they really do, which is why I think that the work that you're doing in your background just, it's such an interesting mix. And I think it's one of the things that probably makes you as effective as you are in what you do. So one of the pieces that you've written that I found particularly interesting, especially at this point in time um, where we are in our history with the pandemic and the racism issues, is some research you did about um, the dehumanization of the way leadership is um, often taught in business schools. And can you just explain that a little bit and, and what your what was your what was your premise there? What were you what are you thinking when you say it's been dehumanized? Well, I was looking at, you know, how is it possible that we invest so much in leadership, you know, in uh, in universities, but also in organizations. And then we seem to get so little of it. You know, we keep hearing how our companies have very narrow leadership pipelines and our communities need more and better leaders. And, and at the same time, we write about leadership, we research it, we teach it. So there's a disconnect there. There's clearly a disconnect between what we think and write and do and teach and, uh, and the impact we have. And one way to, and one way to understand the disconnect is to think about it as a result of a dehumanization of leadership. And what I mean by dehumanization is that we are often taking leadership over the last 40 and 50 years and either reduce it to something very narrow, very mechanical, like a list of tools and skills you have to have so that basically you can get your way. Um, or we have um, done something different. We have elevated it to a virtue and we've sort of glorified these near perfect leaders who get everything right and they bring about the future and they clearly live on a plane that is different from everyone else. And this sort of reduction or elevation of leadership, what it does is it removes it from the everyday human life, which is often a life of conflict and is a life that occurs in communities. It's essentially detached leadership from both its psychological and social context. What I say is the dehumanization of leadership means to disembody it and disembed it, to make it look like leadership is something that exists in the abstract, uh -huh. separate from people's body, from people's relationship, from people's culture, from people's communities, from people's moment. And that's essentially a convenient strategy because it allows you then to package a leadership model and sell it or to create nice stories of virtuous people that everyone can emulate without really having to kind of dig in um, the weeds of, okay, what was happening to you in that moment and what you did, how did it benefit this person and not this other person and how could it be right in a particular context but then wrong in a different context. So a lot of the real complexity, a lot of the social psychological complexity of leadership gets removed. Mm. The problem is it's not just convenient because very often what we have to do when we do intellectual work is simplify, mm -hmm. right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is that in the case of leadership, simplification can be harmful because we then conveniently sweep under the carpet a lot of questions 
that we really should be bringing far more right. to the surface. Right. If we really, if what we are doing really has to be leadership development rather than offering some exemplars and tools that allow you to be more efficient at reaching some goals. Yeah. Um, which is really a very narrow, a very mechanistic, very functional view of leadership, which kind of um, ignores the whole psychological, social, moral dimension of leadership, which instead is so, so, so important. Yes. And so in many ways, we have been advancing um, a dehydrated, if you wish, to kind of borrow from Nancy Adler's words, view of leadership, a narrow view of leadership, an amoral view of leadership. And then we've been complaining <laughs> that the leaders we've got are very efficient, but they're not very empathic. They're not very moral. Well, guess what? We have actually participated. We've colluded is the stronger word in the picture of leadership that then gets embodied. I, see. I mean, if you think of what we do in education is part of what we do when we develop leadership is not just developing the people, is also developing the images that then people use as templates for their practice. Right. And I think both in our imagery and in our teaching, very often we've employed a model of leadership that's um, woefully inadequate I see. to address yeah. the real richness of what happens when one person um, claims to lead and others um, choose to follow. Yeah. So at this moment in time, it seems to me that more than ever, uh, the idea of having humanistic leadership is, is just so important right now with the issues that we're dealing with in the world. And uh, I know that one of the points that you make in your article is uh, to humanize as you talk with students about how does one get to lead? And that's just one of the questions. Yeah. But so, so you've shared with us what has happened in terms of the way that it's been taught in both universities and in businesses to dehumanize what needs to happen and how do we humanize that more particularly at this moment in time well i think that question of you know how does one get to lead is very 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 important and uh, you know another way of framing the question is what, what makes you a leader right and uh, in the dehumanized view leadership is a position or a possession okay what makes you a leader is the fact that you occupy a certain place in a social hierarchy a corner office a ceo office a prime minister post or in another view is that you have a certain set of skills that allow you to um, get other people to do what you want to put it uh, very bluntly the way we put it a little bit more uh, elegantly is to influence others to reach collective goals but yeah you know essentially it's to get people to do what you, what you want to do. Now, one of the things that a humanized view of leadership does is to say, you know what, leadership is neither a position nor a possession. What it is, is a story that moves and a space to make a story move. It's a story that moves you. It's a story that moves others. It's a story that moves from an idea to reality. And as a leader, what you do is you bring your own story and you, and other people often follow you because that story is aspirational to them. Your story is their story, is their story and you come together to make, it become, um, to make it become real. In many ways, leadership is not a position or a possession. 
is a story and a space to make that story real. And in fact, where leadership comes from is from your followers. It's not from your position, it's not from your skills, but it's from the people who choose to entrust you to lead them because of the story, not that you tell, but the story you show, the story you offer. The so once you, you really yeah. buy into the story you live, absolutely. Once you really understand leadership in that way, then of course the question you have to ask yourself is not how do I get to that office or how do I acquire those skills, but what is the story that people see when they see me and what, are the, what is the story that we are realizing together? That's kind of the question of, you know, how does one, that's what it comes to the question of how does one get to lead? One gets to lead by often saying, this is where we are and this is where we are going and why incredibly, credibly advancing that story. Because of course you can pay, you can tell all kinds of story, but leadership is not storytelling. Leadership is story building. All yes. kinds of stories can be told, but some stories get built. The powerful stories get built. And of course, once you, once you begin, once people follow you because they believe that we should build this story as opposed to another story, of course, you're engaged uh, not just in a technical enterprise. Of course, there's a technical element to that. You know, is that feasible? How do we get there? But there's also more element to that, which is why is this story more worthy? And right. for whom is yeah. it worthy? Yeah. So in many ways, what you have to do when you're trying to humanize leadership development is to build your, is, is to conjugate the development of your technical skills, because if you're incompetent, it's gonna be pretty hard to build any sure. story. Yeah. Right. With, with your personal history and your social context. So return the psychological, return the social alongside the economical, the technical. And this is not to say that the technical and the functional don't matter. The, what we need is not a revolution in leadership development. What we need is an expansion because of course the technical matters, of course the economic matter, of course if you have the skills, of course if you have resources, of course if you have position, you're gonna have much more opportunity to make your, um, to make your, to build your story and to get people to want to build the story you want to build. Yeah. But the question is, is that story going to be good and right. good for whom? It's a very, very powerful, powerful statement. So where do you see, you, you mentioned morals in there, in, in the story and whether or not people are choose to follow you, which is really the, the essence of true leadership. Where do you see sort of ethics fitting into that overall dynamic of someone's story and being a leader? Everywhere. Everywhere, because uh, any any story, any good story, any story that works, which is any story that has um, a certain appeal for some people, and often story of appeal for some people, and they also repel other people, works because it has a moral. Work because it builds a certain world, and uh, it avoids um, another. So. There's, um, I don't think there's any leadership that doesn't have an ethical dimension if you, if you look at it from this perspective. Because in, um, in every context, leadership is about building a certain future, it's about making choices and the choices have consequences. And therefore the ability to, if not predict, which I think is a strong word, to at least 
consider, entertain, interrogate the consequences of your choices and the choices others do um, with you is, um, is an ethical enterprise. It's a choice about what's good and what's not, what's right and um, what's wrong. It's not all there is to leadership, but it's, um, it's, a, fundamental part of, um, it's a fundamental part of leading. Even when you choose to reveal certain things about yourself and keep others hidden, you are making um, a moral choice, mm-hmm. not, just, um, not just a psychological choice. You are making some assumptions about what's right and good for you as a leader to make public and what you better keep for yourself. So that, so creating that kind of space and holding that tension inside as opposed to sort of picking one side or the other, uh, how do you see that hooking together, if you will, with this recent statement by the business roundtable um, and, and changing after 22 years, the view of what the main purpose of a corporation is and, and saying now that it is to serve all of the stakeholders. Larry Fink and his comments by BlackRock, to me, that, that exemplifies, I think, what you're saying in terms of holding some tension. Yeah, certainly. That's a statement in the direction. It's saying, you know, our commitment is broader than to just um, one group and one ideology. Because very often where you see a commitment to a single group, you re- it's really a proxy for a commitment to a single ideology. And uh, saying, you know, maybe business needs to be more civilized, less tribal and more civilized. And what uh-huh. I mean by that is that instead of having a single story and you're in, if you belong to the story or you're out, if you don't agree with it, maybe it needs to actually host more than one story that have equal citizenship. And, uh, you know, and we need to give equal weight to the function from, you know, equal weight, the functional economic part of business and to the sort of social cultural part of business. I think it's a great intent. And I want to underline it's an intent because uh, I think the road to equality between those two ideologies and principles in business as in business schools is still long. Yeah. Very often, those of us who work for the, from the social cultural angle, even ourselves, we diminish, we undercut, we dehumanize ourselves. And you know how we do it? Every time we make, for example, the business case for equality. What we're doing is we're saying is we have to justify the humanistic um, by saying, by, by the logic of the instrumental. And every time we do that, humanism dies of a thousand cuts. You know, every time we don't say, well, this is an equally important, it's an equally important aspect of a healthy organization as, of course, making sure that you have, you know, healthy profits and, um, and all that. Every time we say this is of value because it does that, we are saying that's primary. Uh, we are right. participating in our own subordination. Right, right. And, um, and I think, you know, the road to equality begins with being unashamed in saying this matters as much as that. So let's talk about an article that you recently wrote in the Harvard Business Review um, that was talking about management being at a midlife crisis. What did you mean by that? What I mean by that is that, you know, the, um, the pandemic concerning the social justice um, movements in the U.S. with Black Lives Matter and also, you know, beyond the U.S. has really brought to the surface some, 
vulnerabilities that were already there. You know, a midlife crisis is often where you have um, something that shows that a lot of your um, adaptation, your habits just are a bit unsustainable. You see, and a lot of the things we're discussing now, you know, issues of, uh, you know, the purpose of capitalism, issues of social justice in the workplace and in communities, issue of work becoming more insecure and more remote, you know, they didn't start in March, April 2020. You know, obviously you've been working in this domain a lot longer than I and many others, but they've now really come to the surface in a way that it's unavoidable. So that's that's what I mean, you know, that these things that used to be, you know, and we used to come together and talk about them under the rubric of the future of work. Mm -hmm. uh, something that we really needed to take care of because, you know, the issue of the reckoning with um, the reckoning with purpose was coming because of the new generation. And really, we need to be more inclusive, but we won't be able to do it until the next 15 years. And, you know, work will become more remote. The Internet will disrupt your job, you know, at some point in the future. And of course, you know, what's happened in the last six months is we realize the future of work is already here. So it's now here. today, now no one else, no one talks about the future of work anymore. We all talk about the new normal. Yes. It's like the future arrived, um, the future yes. has arrived all at once. So that's what I mean by a midlife crisis, that we're catching up with um, questions and vulnerabilities that our bodies, that our collective bodies were already simmering. Yeah. Um, were already simmering before, and now we really have to deal with. And of course, one of the reasons why I use that metaphor is because a midlife crisis is a moment in which you realize the limitation of your belief, of your prior adaptation to deal with your reality and to deal with, with your future. And in those moments, usually people go two ways. Either they really double down on their defenses and say, no, 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 they're actually, we can really kind of throw money at this problem and we can really fix it by, uh -huh. um, you know, running a marathon or uh, taking a long trip. Or you can say, okay, what got me here won't get me there. And so I really need to. In fact, there's a book by that. There's a book, I... there's a book by that title, What Got Me Here Won't Get Me There. And in many ways, individuals have always gone through those moments. Yes. What I mean, when I, say, when I wrote about the midlife crisis of management, I wrote that management as a concept and as a practice is going right. through that moment. Right. That management, we understood it as essentially a cog in a capitalist machine is really not fit to address the, um, the kind of question and challenges that we are facing now, whether those are technological challenges, whether those are social challenges, whether those are economic challenges. Since we've come almost full, full circle, uh, let me ask you uh, one last question about, about universities and what business schools in particular can do to better prepare students to be humanistic, morals-based, values-based leaders that have integrity? Yes, um, personalize it. Personalize it. Don't, uh, yes, teach about, of course, the, I actually think philosophy, legal frameworks, you know, technical aspects are all very important because there will be those moments in which you face a choice between doing the right thing and the wrong thing. Right. And you know what the right thing is, but you don't have the courage or the support or the ability to do it. 
Right. And so you do the wrong thing. And those are the kind of classic ethical moments we often prepare for and teach about. But that's only one slice that's right. of the ethical challenges you will face. That's right. A lot of other ethical challenges will not come with that sort of um, you know, red light that says right or wrong, do the right thing. Oh no, I can't do it. No. They will often come under the guise of um, take, take this job offer or not. Do I release this product or not? Do I code it this way or, um, or that way? They will look like career choice, technical choice. They will look like business choices. This is why I think it's very, very important that in management education, we also teach about the, what I call the ethics of everyday life. The uh -huh. way there's no, you know, we often make this arbitrary distinction. Well, is that a business decision or an ethical decision? Right, it's, it's all wrapped up I mean, together. <laughs> Every business decision, if you analyze it from an ethical perspective, is an ethical decision. As soon as you stop asking, uh, you know, what return does it generate, and you start asking what consequences does it have on the future and other people, you actually discuss it as an ethical case. And, and this is very, very important, especially today, because a lot of the graduates that come out of business school will work in, um, in organizations that have one is where there isn't a normative framework, so it's not obvious what the right thing is because the, the business is so cutting edge that right. it's ahead of the, yes. of the law, but also of the kind of social discourse that yes. has decided, you know, there's no norm. So your, your decision will be a precedent. And right. also it's more diverse. Those are two things to celebrate. You know, one, you know, one way to you know, end on a positive note is that the reason why we are more preoccupied with moral leadership, it's because our students, our graduates, have more and more have the possibility to work in cutting edge and diverse organizations. Therefore, those organizations don't have established norm and don't have a single story. Now that's progress. Right. That's progress, but success at its price, as its price. And the price is, of course, when you work in an environment in which there isn't a normative framework and there is more than one story, then you really ought to ask yourself more forcefully and more frequently questions that you didn't have to ask before because they have been asked and they've been settled. Right. So all you had to do was to do the right thing. Right. And now, to be a moral leader is, yes, to do those right things in the big red flag moments, but also to ask the right question all the other moments. Yeah, And I think we need to emphasize both aspects mm -hmm. of, um, of doing that. And one very philosophical, but also very practical way of doing that is to really infuse the curriculum, not just with the question of what generates the best returns or the, the more attractive career prospects, but really kind of throw in the question of what's a good life. What's a good life in 30 years? And a lot of us do all this kind of imaginary exercise. No, what's a good life tonight? Yeah. You know, how do you make the choice about whether you should invite these people to dinner or not? Um, <laughs> you know, because it's going to be often in those little choices at work that you'll be more or less inclusive, that you'll, you know, you'll have a chance to hear different perspectives or not. So yes, ask yourself, what's a good life? you know, in the philosophical way, but also ask yourself, how do you know what's a good life in the next 24 hours? And you'll be surprised how often you come to questions of values, not just of convenience. Yeah, yeah. Unless, of course, your only value is convenience. Right. That's the problem. <laughs> right, right.
So one last question. What's the best book that you've read or movie that you've watched or podcast you've listened to for fun, but that also had a really kind of just engaging ethical dimension to it or a moral dimension to it? Oh, I read a book that moved me so much. And surprisingly, too, it's a book published by... Um, by the author who's very popular and very established in the United States, Jhumpa Lahiri. You might know her for a collection of short stories, The Interpreter of Maladies, that um, won the Pulitzer Prize, and then she's done beautiful fiction work narrating the, the experience of the first generation um, of children of Indian immigrants. And of course, um, she has become a very established literary, literary figure. And um, at some point in midlife, she decided that um, she was so established, she couldn't really speak anymore of the experience of someone, of, of the immigrant, of someone who arrived and saw culture from the outside. So she moved to Italy and she made herself, she learned Italian, but to the level where she could write fiction in it. Oh now, for any one of us who, who, who read and write in a second language, that's, you know, we, we know the struggle. And it really touched me to read her stories in Italian, in my, in my mother tongue. And it was just so beautiful. And it was also just, I'm not sure I can explain entirely why, but it spoke of a journey that was similar to mine and yet in the opposite direction of right. mine, yeah. but with the same intent, with the right. same intent, the ability to keep, you know, you started by saying, you know, you're, I'm always a little bit of an immigrant in the world of business because I come from this other world. And in many ways, that's been, you know, that's been a struggle. Um, but it's also been a source of uh, insight yes. because sometimes, and sometimes when you're an outsider, you can see the inside a little bit more clearly or you can say it because right. you don't understand the risk of doing that. And what she says is um, in order to maintain that, outsiderness you have to of course move towards it you don't just have to escape or you have to move towards you know and they are and, and i think to to retain that ability to move towards the other to move towards the unknown for me it was very inspiring very touching and um, and it reminded me that you know very often a lot of what we do in leadership development is helping people not just find themselves but make themselves, not just find where they come from, but also build a home. And, um, and when we have a chance, not just to find a home, but build a home, we're very, very lucky indeed. It's, um, it's a privilege to, to use wisely. And so that's that. That's very touching. That's, that's great. Well, John Piero, this has been a very illuminating conversation, and we've covered a lot of ground. And thank you so much for the time you've spent with us today. It's been fabulous. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure, Cindy. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, the Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us, and you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.